0: I'm here in Lower Manhattan, outside the courthouse for the Southern District of New York.
1: Stevie Hertz is one of The Economist's US correspondents, and she's one of the journalists who's been jostling to get into court.
0: And there's a bunch of press here, there's some camera crews, there's lots of cameramen.
1: They are there for what is perhaps the biggest event in the history of crypto, the trial of Sam Bankman-Fried, or SBF as he's known.
0: He was once the wunderkind of crypto, he was the golden boy, he was the head of FTX, but now he's on trial for seven criminal counts of security fraud and money laundering. He's pled not guilty to all the counts, but if he's convicted he could get what would essentially be a life sentence in prison. It's not the
1: first time this courthouse has seen a high profile trial.
0: It's where Eugene Carroll versus Trump, where those civil suits happened. It's where Bob Menendez, the US Senator, was arraigned. But one of the things it's most famous for is financial crime. So the junk bond king, Michael Milken, had his trial here. Bernie Madoff, the Ponzi king, had his trial here. Even Martha Stewart had her insider trading trial in this courthouse.
1: Every day of the trial, SBF is transported to the courthouse from a jail across the East River in Brooklyn, that is notorious for its uncomfortable conditions.
0: Sam Eichmann-Fried is famously a vegan, and he said he's been surviving on bread, peanut butter, and water because the jail isn't providing any other vegan food.
1: And his appearance has changed too.
0: In court today, he had lost his famous mop of curly hair. It was now close-cropped. Apparently, one of the other detainees had cut his hair for him. He was in a suit rather than his normal shorts. All of this
1: is a far cry from the life of luxury that he was living in the Bahamas less than a year ago when he was first arrested. Today, we hear from the man who was there to chart his downfall. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. In London,
2: I'm Tom Lee Devlin. In Singapore, I'm Mike Bird.
3: In Eau Claire, Wisconsin, I'm Alice Forward.
2: And today, the first of
1: two shows asking what the future is for crypto. This week, we speak to Michael Lewis, the author of Moneyball, The Big Short, and now a new
2: book following the rise and fall of Sam Bankman-Fried. First, Michael tells us some of the problems SBF was trying to solve and some of the solutions he
4: came up with. The idea of paying Donald Trump not to run for president, (laughs) or the idea of paying off the Bahamas' national debt.
3: Then, we hear what life was like for those living with a crypto billionaire.
4: The only other person I've been with where so much wild shit happens when you're with him is Kanye.
1: And finally, what's next for Michael Lewis?
4: I handed in a script to Apple for a drama where I run the show.
1: Mike, Alice, hello. Hey, Tom. Hello. I have to admit, Alice, I have not heard of Eau Claire, Wisconsin before. Is that some kind of little known hub of high finance in America?
3: Yeah, it's really not at all a little known hub of high finance. It's a small lakeside city with a sort of indie vibe in Wisconsin. It's very beautiful this time of year, lots of full foliage. But I'm here for our Christmas issue. Actually, I'm doing a story about women and their newfound enthusiasm for DIY. So I came to this part of the world to actually do some DIY with a woman who lives in another part of the region.
2: It is, as they call it, the Bahrain of the upper Midwest of the United States.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, there's nowhere that I won't go for a story. It is a pretty stark contrast to last week when I was in Bahrain, as you mentioned. And I was there to interview Changpeng Zhao, who is the boss and founder of Binance. And we will actually hear that interview on next week's show. As we'll hear from Michael Lewis later in the episode, CZ, as he is often known, was pretty involved in the events that ultimately brought down Sam Bankman-Fried.
2: I'm really looking forward to what he's got to say. Caroline Ellison, SBF's ex-girlfriend who ran Alameda, his hedge fund business, has testified that one of SBF's main priorities was getting regulators to crack down on Binance. So CZ might not be too upset that SBF's own exchange collapsed. Still the site of exchanges collapsing generally is not usually good news to other people running exchanges.
3: Yes, well, you'll have to wait until next week to actually hear what he has to say, because before we hear from crypto's sort of last man standing, we get to hear from Michael Lewis, who had a front row seat as Sam Bankman-Fried's exchange, FDX, collapsed.
2: So have you guys read the book then, Going Infinite? I'll say I speed read it, and I'm very nearly finished.
3: Of course, I've read his book. I've listened to his trial podcast and consumed vast quantities of other content about Sam Freedom and, and the trial.
1: What did you guys think of the book?
3: Mixed, I guess. Obviously, it's always a total joy to read his prose and he had absolutely phenomenal access to Sam Mackenfreed. I loved all the stuff early in the book about his Jane Street days and his childhood and how unusual a person he is. I do think it was a slightly strange choice to not really take readers through what crimes Sam Bankman-Fried has been accused of. Even if Mr. Lewis did want to sort of leave it up to readers to make up their minds about how much wrongdoing Sam, you know, he allegedly did. I did think it made the second half of the book read slightly strangely.
2: Yeah, very similarly. I feel like And reading the book, you can tell very much where different parts of the writing started or where different parts of the investigation started, at least. This does not read like a book that started with there's been this potential fraud. Here's the backstory to that. You can feel the fact that this really was in the works when the book was already considerably reported. It reads more like this. Exploration of a precocious young billionaire that then gets derailed rather than the question of the trial that we're obviously preoccupied with at the moment.
4: I
1: think very similar reaction to both of you. Michael Lewis is, of course, a brilliant writer from The Big Short to Flash Boys. His work is always fantastic. And this is another wonderfully written book. It reads like this kind of crazy adventure story and it does a really nice job, I thought, exploring the quirky sides of his main characters. But the awkward thing is that those characters are now alleged to be criminals that lost billions of dollars of customer and investor money and that side of the story is not really a central focus of the book.
2: Yeah, it's not until the final 60 or so pages of the book, which is what I'm in the middle of at the moment, that he really turns to the alleged fraud.
1: Well, to explain why he tackled the subject the way he did and to give us some greater insight into Sam Bankman-Fried or Sam as Michael Lewis calls him in the book. I brought the author into the hot box that is our London studio. Michael Lewis, thank you so much for joining us on Money Talks.
4: Pleasure to be here.
1: Can you tell us about your first meeting with Sam and how it came about?
4: It was wholly accidental. A good friend of mine called me in September of 2021 and asked me would I meet with this character he was thinking about doing a business deal with. The character was Sam Bankman-Fried. They were talking about exchanging shares in each other's companies and he was in this awkward position he said because while he couldn't believe how fast FTX was growing, he had no sense of Sam. He said this guy has become a multi-billionaire and nobody knows who he is. Could you like spend a little time with him? And so he tumbled out of an Uber in his shorts and his t-shirt in my office in Berkeley, California. And I spent a couple of hours with him. At the end of the couple of hours, I said, I don't know where this is going, but I'd like to kind of just watch. And starting kind of towards the end of that year, I sort of moved into his life.
1: And you had a front row seat to all the developments that came next. How would you summarize Sam as a person?
4: Complicated. The first impression he gave me, he was really like one of these characters from Moneyball, but instead of using probabilistic judgments to evaluate baseball players. He was using it for every decision in his life, including like whether to have children and making these expected value calculations. In addition, he seemed unbelievably determined, like very strong-willed, very ambitious, and partly because he had a pile of $22 billion, thinking about problems in ways I just hadn't heard them thought about. For example, the idea of paying Donald Trump not to run for president (laughs) or the idea of paying off the Bahamas' national debt. And this is gonna sound strange in light of what happened, but at first meeting him, kind of ingenuous, like willing to answer questions you wouldn't think someone with $22 billion would answer. If you asked the right question, you got answers that surprised you. He admittedly had never felt love. He never really felt pride. He said there was this range of feeling he heard about from other people that he himself didn't experience. Every time I thought I had a box to put him in, he somehow crept outside the box. Every time I thought, oh, he's that kind of person, there's some name for what he's got or what he is, he'd do something that suggests, no, that's not quite right. Seldom do I think of people as unique. Usually they fall into kind of categories. He felt unique. When was the last
1: time you spoke to Sam? Are you still in contact?
4: I haven't actually spoken with him since he was taken away to jail. That was... August the 11th. But before that, I was in pretty steady contact with him. I mean, the prosecutors did me this massive service by essentially putting him under house arrest an hour from my home in California. So I was able to spend a lot of time while I was working on the book with him. This book has been
1: criticized as being too soft on a man who ultimately did waylay $8 billion of customers' money. And in my mind, there's really three possibilities here. The first is that Sam is a kind of crypto Bernie Madoff, you know, who stole customers' money with no intention of ever giving it back. The second is that he was reckless with the money and took excessive risks with it. And then the third is that he was merely incompetent, or at least in over his head and lost track of the funds amid the complexity of the crypto world. Which story
4: do you think is closest to the truth here? If those are the three choices, if you want to complete the spectrum, total innocent. He's not totally innocent of any kind of understanding of what he was doing. That's very clear. It's clear in the book. Crypto Bernie Madoff does not ring true to me. If it had rung true, I would have written it. Crypto Bernie Madoff I would say is probably the consensus of crypto Twitter and the crypto community and there are just too many things that don't rhyme with Bernie Madoff, with that kind of thing. Like, for example, if FTX was all along this diabolical plot to separate customers from their money, why was he so reluctant to actually even start FTX? Like, it's an accident. Second, every time I raise this, people say, oh, that doesn't matter, but I think it does matter. With Bernie Madoff, the money was gone. There wasn't a business. I mean, in the case of FTX, there was a real business. The third thing, again, peculiar, and may not find its way into the courtroom. But It looks like there's a fair chance like the money 's there, like the bankruptcy people have said that there are eight point six billion dollars in customer deposits missing they've found as of June seven point three billion dollars in liquid assets, and they said they thought they were going to continue to find more in it. I think it 's literally found like an Easter egg hunt, like three hundred million dollars on that crypto exchange and two hundred million dollars in that bank account. Let me put it this way: if anybody was capable of not paying too much attention to the fact that he had $10 billion of customer money in the wrong place, it was him. It's just messier than, oh, he's just Bernie Madoff, which is not to say he's not guilty. How I feel about it is a little different from how maybe the law will come down on it. My feeling is not so much anger as sadness. It's like it's such a pity. Had there been some regulatory mechanism, some grown-up who had some control, some actual regulator in their lives. It was wholly unnecessary.
1: So, I mean, I think it's fair to say from what you discussed then that you don't think Sam intended to steal the money?
4: I don't know. I don't. Intent is a funny thing. So I don't have a strong view there. What I have is sort of like the most complete story I could compile having been very close to it and leaving that question up to the reader of what this person might have intended
1: Legally speaking, though, I suppose even if he didn't intend to steal the money, he doesn't need to have intended to steal the money to have defrauded his customers. He just needs to have lied to them about what he was going to do.
4: I'd be shocked if he didn't go to jail.
1: Do you think he deserves to go to jail?
4: Feels like a waste to send him to jail. Some sort of punishment seems in order, but... I tell you, it's very Sam Bankman-Fried if the judge comes and puts him in jail for life and then everybody gets their money back. That's what we might be looking at. Do I think he should go to jail for 120 years? That seems excessive. But who am I to say?
1: Why do you say it would be very Sam Bankman-Fried?
4: There's a darkly comic dimension to everything that happens to him and everything he does. It's not pure comedy. It's not just funny, but it's sort of funny. And there's this way of how everything just gets – a little screwed up when he touches it. Sometimes in very interesting ways. Someone said to me, while I was working on the book, it was someone who spent a lot of time with celebrities, was in Sam's life for some reason or other, and he said, the only other person I've been with where so much wild shit happens when you're with him is Kanye. He says you attach yourself to Kanye and you just know wild stuff you've never seen before is gonna happen. And it's the same as true with Sam. It's just like, bizarre original situation after bizarre original situation
1: why do you think sam granted you such intimate access to his life
4: i think it changed slightly over time but i think the original reason was i mean it's bizarre in retrospect but you can remember that this is a person whose competitive advantage was trust he was becoming the trusted person in crypto and they were the business that were seeking regulation, seeking licenses, seeking to be inside of countries rather than kind of stateless. And The holy grail was get regulated in the United States and be allowed to trade Bitcoin futures and other products in the United States. And I think he thought that it would earn him credibility with regulators if I wrote a book about him. I think as time went on. This happens with all my subjects. I mean, I was with him for, what is it? I mean, a year and a half, kind of, and with him a lot and around him a lot. And at some point, I became part of the furniture, and he stopped, I think, even thinking about why I was there. And at some point also, and this happens with a lot of my subjects, he would bounce things off of me, and I think he enjoyed it. I think he took some pleasure in the company, actually. So in the end, it became a more natural relationship.
1: And on that point of relationship between the two of you, so your description of Sam's inner circle, many of whom are testifying against him now, is often, I think, harsher than your treatment of Sam in the book. For example, Caroline Ellison, who's his ex-girlfriend and led Alameda Research, often from my reading, in the book, comes across as clingy and, and frankly, a bit juvenile. Can I one. stop you right
4: there? Because this is interesting. When the book was read by the initial readers in the publishing house, here and in the United States, there were maybe 15 people who read it. The men all said what you just said. The women thought Caroline was a hero. They loved her. The women thought she was a fabulous character and, you know what, they hated Sam. So I promise you that your opinion is not universally shared. It's your reading of the story and it isn't me putting my finger on a scale. I didn't think my depiction of Caroline was harsher than my depiction of Sam. The depiction of Sam probably only looks less harsh because you think of him as Bernie Madoff. It's compared to this mental model that you have in your head. I think that they're pretty similar depictions. Like the spirit in which I wrote about him are pretty similar.
1: I suppose the essence of my question really is, do you worry that you got too close to your subject?
4: No. I always get this close to the subjects. So I don't really know how you can write about people unless you get to know them. What's the alternative is to write about people you don't know? The problem for the writer is when they sit down, do they have something in their head that's going to prevent them from painting the clearest portrait they can of the person they came to know? In the case of Sam, I knew when I sat down that anything I wrote would just roll off his back and besides, he was probably going to be in jail, so I felt completely liberated. There's another thing that can happen and that I do pay attention to but wasn't as much of a problem this time as it has been in the past and it's you form some emotional attachment to the person. You can't help but become kind of friends in some way and I've had that happen with previous subjects and I've had to kind of fight it when I sit down to write. Sam Bankman Freed had no capacity to feel anything for me. It was very hard for me to generate a capacity to feel for him. It wasn't an emotional relationship. The only thing on my shoulder, if you think about what I'm doing, I'm sitting down and writing at the end of January about a man who is universally loathed. It's the knowledge that if I don't join the mob in its loathing of him, if I write him as I see him, that everybody's going to be upset. I mean I knew exactly what was going to happen when I published this thing, that there was going to be a crowd of people who had already made up their minds about him whose narrative would be jostled by mine but what am I supposed to do? I got to portray him the way I saw him. And so I did. So Alice,
1: Mike, that's the first half of the interview. And just putting aside the question of guilt or innocence for one moment, I find this tension around objectivity and how close you should get to your subject really fascinating from a journalistic perspective. I'm not sure if you guys read Walter Isaacson's new Elon Musk biography, but he also received quite a lot of criticism for being too soft on his subject. And in Isaacson's case, he actually followed Musk around for two years, including through the whole saga of his acquisition of Twitter and many other controversial episodes over that time. And on the one hand, I think getting close to your subject is obviously essential for writing an insightful biography. But perhaps there is a risk that you start to be drawn a little too closely into that person's perspective on events and can end up in this position of trying to almost defend them
3: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question to think about. And I guess if we as readers want these deeply reported biographies where people spend hours and hours and hours with their subjects, then there's always a risk, I guess, that they might come to kind of like them. And I don't really know how you resolve that as a human being interacting with another human being. The bit that I found most interesting so far is if we think about the scenarios Michael discussed, so he's maybe innocent, reckless, or the second coming of Madoff, A lot of the testimony from the courtroom falls between those latter two points. So far, obviously, it's only the prosecution that has made its case. But if you believe the witnesses they have brought, that's Gary Wang, Nishant Singh and Caroline Ellison, who are all former FTX or Alameda employees... Sam did know for a long time that there was not enough money left in Alameda to pay FDX customers back if they all came at once. Caroline said he knew that when she paid back some loans that Alameda had taken out in June 2022 that there would not be enough money left to pay out customers. The others have testified that at various other points he was definitely aware. Nishad actually describes having this conversation with him about it in September 2022 after he realised the depth of the issues at Alameda and it sounded like he was pretty devastated. He said that he felt like five years of blood, sweat and tears from me and so many employees driving towards something that I thought was beautiful, a force for good, had turned out to be so evil. Of course, SBF's defence team is yet to lay out its version of events. So that narrative could change pretty dramatically in the coming weeks.
2: So one thing that I found really interesting there, aside from this question of the legal cases, with someone like Michael Lewis, I'm always really interested in how you select the characters, because if you're writing about business and finance, it's not enough that someone just has a lot of money or there's a lot of money at stake. That is the case in all of these cases. There has to be a level of interest in the person as well. And the thing that Michael Lewis said there about SBF, everything he did being darkly comic in a way, the description that everything he does has something funny to it really hit the nail on the head to me for why there's quite so much interest in him. He has, for better or worse, this watchable element. It's very easy to see now how he's become this main character. Rather than a star quality, he has this sort of meme quality. And I think we can basically say that When this book came out, for sure, there was always going to be some group of people that, because of that meme quality, was not going to be happy with the way his portrayal ended up. So listening to that, I do understand a bit better, I think, where Michael Lewis is coming from on all of this.
1: After the break, we'll hear about the role CZ may have played in Sam Bankman-Fried's downfall and whether Michael Lewis worries that his sympathetic portrayal of SBF may come back to bite
3: him. But before that, we have an important update. As regular listeners will know, we're launching Economist Podcast Plus on October 24th, which means you'll need to be a subscriber to continue listening every week.
2: If you are already a subscriber to The Economist in print or digital form, or you've subscribed to Economist Podcasts Plus, thank you very much. If you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you will need to link your Economist subscription to your podcast app to unlock all of our shows.
3: To help you do that, we will publish an extra mini episode alongside our regular episode next week. It's a short welcome to the world of Economist Podcast Plus. That preview episode is the first of our podcasts that will be locked, which means it will be behind the paywall. Simply click on the episode and you'll be directed to enter your Economist account details to log in and
2: hear it. Once you've done that, you are all set. You only need to do this once and all shows will be unlocked for good. You'll be free to follow any or all of our podcasts. Sit back and enjoy.
1: If you don't use Apple or Spotify, go to the FAQ page in the show notes for details on how to access Economist Podcasts Plus on your preferred podcast app. And if you're worried that you'll forget any of this, well, don't worry. Just look out for an email from The Economist that will cover everything.
3: You'll still be able to listen to next week's Money Talks without linking your account, but you will have to make sure you go through the linking process if you want to carry on listening after that.
2: Thousands of you have already signed up to Economist Podcasts Plus, and we're delighted you'll be joining us. Don't worry if you haven't signed up yet. There's still time to take advantage of a special offer, which has been extended to the end of October. It's just £2, dollars or euros a month, that's half price, if you take out an annual subscription. To find it, click the link in the show notes or just search Economist Podcasts.
0: Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite.
1: Before the break, we heard what Michael Lewis's time with SBF was like. Next, I wanted to dig into how that left him feeling about the future of crypto and whether he regretted the way that he would portrayed Sam in the book. Michael, after your time with FTX, were you left feeling that crypto is something that's good for the financial system, for the world, or is it just kind of a new form of
4: gambling? So mainly a new form of gambling, but not only. It wasn't my first encounter with crypto. I had been several times entreated by crypto enthusiasts to come write a book about it. I really tried to get interested by several different points and each time I felt like I was hearing about a solution looking for a problem and they hadn't figured out what it was for and each time the story slightly changed. In the very beginning, it really was being sold as this is going to replace the dollar, this is going to replace fiat currency as a means of exchange. Then it became an uncorrelated asset. That was obviously not uncorrelated. It moved up and down with everything else. Then it became it was the new gold. So it always felt unpersuasive to me as a story. And the people behind it always felt like they were just talking their own book, like write a book about crypto, so crypto goes up. But that doesn't mean there's nothing there. And I was and am attracted to the possibility that it eliminates the need for a lot of financial intermediation, that this ability to transact without having people in the middle, might ultimately be very useful. And I don't want to dismiss that, but it does feel overblown.
1: How significant a role do you think that Binance's CZ, who you portray as this sort of arch nemesis to Sam in the book, how significant a role do you think that he played in Sam's downfall?
4: He's not that big a character in the book, but in a way he created Sam. Sam thought that CZ created him, that When Sam got out to Asia and had no idea how to start an exchange and he was first thought he was going to hope CZ would start the exchange and he would just take a little piece of it. CZ blessed him. CZ not only invested in him but had him do his conference, had him on stage. CZ sort of conferred a credibility on Sam. So he was important in creating him and in the unraveling, you know, it's hard to know how mistrust happens. Everybody's on pins and needles by November about crypto. Sam has been playing this role of the last man standing in crypto. The balance sheet of Alameda, sort of balance sheet of Alameda, gets published, creating some doubt. But it really isn't until CZ starts tweeting about it that there's this big run. You know, it seemed to trigger the run. So I think he did play a role. I think if there's no CZ, maybe Sam skates through that period. Eventually, if the customer's money is sitting in the wrong place, it's unstable and risky and eventually maybe it comes unraveled. But I think CZ played an important role there. The other thing he did, and it was an interesting play, was he kind of pretended to be interested in buying FTX and it gave him the first clear view of Alameda's balance sheets and of what was inside the place and then he became authoritative on the subject. And Any hope that Sam might have had of rescuing the place ends when CZ says, I've kind of seen it and it's awful.
1: You talk in the book about how one Silicon Valley VC said he thought Sam had a shot at being the world's first trillionaire, and in one of your early conversations with Sam, he said he had use for, quote, infinity dollars. Do you think an even richer Sam Bankman-Fried would have been a good thing for the world?
4: Yeah, I think he would have been. It's not what I would have done with a trillion dollars, but this idea of attacking existential risk, in particular, my last book was about the pandemic was called the premonition and one of the things that just dropped out of that story as very obvious to all the main characters in the story who are experts in disease control was the need for a global system of disease prediction for prevention so the equivalent of like a weather service for disease doable like doable but very expensive and that was top of sam's list if governments seemed to be unwilling to do these things It would have been terrific if someone had gone and done these things. Do I think after that on Sam's to-do list, the other things were quite as valuable? I don't know. I don't know if AI slipping its leash and killing us all was on his list too, but that problem seems intractable. I don't know what you do about that. But I think that he was aimed at problems that you would like governments to address and that governments aren't addressing. And part of the reason I think people were attracted to him it was not just the fact he had 22 billion dollars but he seemed to fill a hole that institutions had left behind and i think it would have been a good thing i think it would have been a good thing
1: and given your relatively sympathetic portrayal of sam in the book are you worried about what it might mean for you and your reputation if he is found guilty
4: no because i don't think i've declared him innocent i think i've left it to the reader to decide how to feel about this i mean i tell you oddly it's funny to me this thing about, oh, a sympathetic betrayal of Sam. It is a human betrayal of him. Like you get a real sense of the person in a way you wouldn't from, say, Twitter. But I've had lawyers tell me who looked at the thing that you've added to the government's case, that you've added to the facts that they will have to deploy in their story. That there's not less but more stuff that's damning in there. I mean, for example, when I ask him if I had asked you is Alameda subjected to the same risk engine that every other investor on the exchange is? I said, what would you have said? He says, I would have answered a different question or I would have made a word salad. I mean, there are half a dozen moments like that. So I don't think the story leads you to Sam's innocence, but it does lead you to Sam's humanity. To close
1: us off, Michael, you have a knack for finding incredible stories. Have you already found your next FTX? Any hints as to what's coming next?
4: You know, oddly, the day before the Hollywood writers' strike, I handed in a script to Apple for a drama where I would run the show. And they seemed very enthusiastic about it. And if they want to make it, that's what I'll be doing, It won't be writing a book. However, if you put a gun to my head right now and said, you've got to generate a book for me in six or eight months, what would it be? It would be a very short book on the trial and the justice system. It felt like the end of the story when FTX collapsed and the start of another story when he gets sucked into this process. But it's got a lot of interest to it, not the least of which is he's the child of two law professors who are having their first real experience with the criminal justice system, and they can't quite believe what they're seeing.
1: Michael Lewis, thank you so much for your time.
4: Thanks for melting me in your studio.
1: <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Alice, Mike, what did you think of that?
3: I mean, I'm thrilled that we got to talk to him. And for all of the controversy about the book, I loved reading it. It was very enjoyable to read. My understanding of SBF is so much deeper for having read it. And I'm also very glad that Michael Lewis was there as this empire was crumbling, because it means we get all kinds of tidbits about it that we otherwise would never have known. I think the impression I get from having listened to Michael is that he seems much more ambivalent about Sam's uh, alleged wrongdoing than the impression that I got from the book. And perhaps that's because he's now actually being asked the question over and over again that he wanted to leave readers with, which is what do you think he did wrong and how bad was it? And he wanted to leave that to readers to make up their own minds. But now that he's on Booktour, he's being asked that question by everyone.
2: Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, it's just a great story, whether you're interested in the sort of Revenge of the Nerds element, the crypto industry generally, the legality or illegality, the philosophy that SPF had or has. It's sort of got all of these things. And so it's inherently interesting. The bigger story to me, I think the book sort of raises more questions for than it resolves. And that's partly about this media relationship with SBF and the whirlwind of publicity that ended up creating him as a character. There's a really interesting bit in the book about Forbes and how he was partly elevated to this ridiculous level by putting him on the rich list and talking about how rapidly his wealth had grown. Obviously, we know now that that was at least to some extent questionable. And, you know, we had Sam boehmann on Money Talks, and I think if we'd had him on during this crypto crash in 2022, we would have been pleased to do that. And I think the media as a whole sort of contributed to that rise in a way that we probably need to think about. And the media in general, the financial media probably needs to think about. Michael Lewis is definitely right on at least one thing, that one of the important things here was trust and who had trust and who sort of facilitated that. So, yeah, I think on some of these issues, just sometimes, not all the time, the media has difficulty in balancing hype and newsworthiness and skepticism in sort of appropriate measures. And I think it'll take a long time to say for certain how we did on this one, but it's worth thinking about.
1: The whole story really does seem a bit like a kind of unnecessary tragedy to me. You know, if if Sam Bankman-Fried had simply shut down Alameda after FTX had, had gained traction, he wouldn't be facing jail time and he'd still be a very rich man. I'm um, not sure if he made the expected value calculation <laughs> on that one, but if he did, I think he he probably underweighted the probability of the kind of downside scenario of losing everything and going to jail. And he had all these big altruistic visions that he talked about using all of his billions of dollars for, like setting up a global warning system for pandemics, for example, and assuming that the talk was genuine, which I think we can because he was already giving a lot of his money away, actually. It, it all just seems like... A bit of a shame, really.
2: Yep. Yeah. so the next time you're in the middle of a lockdown for a horrible infectious disease, you can thank the Southern District of New York for taking away your global warning system for pandemics.
1: <laughs> well, with that, I think it's time for us to pivot to our stats of the week. Mike, Alice, what have you got for
2: us? Yes, great. I'll go first. My statistic of the week is 88%. This relates to something called pumped storage hydropower which I've been reading a bit about this week. It's basically a way of storing and using renewable energy with different reservoirs. And basically, you'll have energy created by solar or wind, usually, and that will be used to pump water into a given reservoir. And then it will be used in the future whenever it's needed by running it back out into the other reservoir again. The 88% is the amount of hydropower pumped storage that is currently under construction in China. That's 88% of the world total of this, which I found a pretty astounding figure, even in the context of China's very large investment in its grid recently. Yeah, I was pretty taken aback by that.
3: This idea of using renewables to sort of pump water up a hill so that you can use more renewable energy in the future seems like such a good idea that I can't believe I'm only hearing about it now. Did we only just come up with this?
2: I don't think so. I think some people have known about this for ages. You and I may have just found out about (laughs) it.
3: My Saturday week this week is $299 plus $20 a month. That is what it would cost you to buy a Meta headset from Meta, formerly known as Facebook, and the monthly subscription fee for a subscription to OpenAI. And given that with its last upgrade, ChatGPT can now hear and speak in addition to communicate via text, that combination of device and service would allow you to generate artificial chatbots that you could interact with in the metaverse. And Mark Zuckerberg went on another podcast to say that this is peak screen time in the future everyone is going to be using these better headsets to uh, chat with I guess their imaginary artificial friends which sounds
2: pretty bleak now obviously that's a decent chunk of money did Mark Zuckerberg explain whether they've gotten the legs (laughs) right yeah because you know chat GPT is great but I don't want to talk to it if they've messed up the legs.
3: (laughs) I don't know if there were any groundbreaking updates on the legs Mike you might be waiting a bit longer for those
1: Well, on the topic of rubbish technology, my stat of the week is $3.5 trillion, which is the total economic toll that the Lloyd's insurance market here in London estimates that a widespread cyber attack on the global payment system could have over a five-year period. This is based on a scenario where hackers sneak some mischievous code into transaction software and that then spreads and allows the hackers to siphon off Massive amounts of funds, which then grinds the the global payment system to a halt. And most of that $3.5 trillion cost is not insured, Lloyds reckons. So in case you felt like you didn't have enough to worry about already today, there's also that.
3: I feel like that even sounds a little low. I think global GDP is something like $100 trillion, spreading it out over five years. Yeah, that's only 0.7% of GDP a year, which obviously is a big number. But uh, if you manage to get some sort of massive global attack on payment systems, I think it would be very catastrophic.
1: Well, if you want it to be more terrified, Alice, I'm sure you'll be pleased to know that that was actually the mid case in their scenario. <laughs> and, and they think it could be as high as $16 trillion, which is it's a lot of dollars.
3: I think that's a lot over a five-year period. There we go. There's my sort of doomsday scenario that I've sniffed out of you. (laughs) The the worst case. Make it worse. (laughs) Up the ante.
1: (laughs) And on that happy note, all that's left to do is thank Michael Lewis.
3: And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to subscribe to Economist Podcast Plus. There's more info in the show notes, along with a link to sign up for that special offer.
2: You can always write to us at podcasts at economist.com. Today's show was produced by Dan Asher, Marie Keyworth and Stevie Hertz.
3: Our sound engineer is Ting Lee Lim.
2: And the executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Tom Lee Devlin. I'm Mike Bird.
3: I'm Alice Fulwood,
1: And this is The Economist.